Howdy, folks. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of TGC Midweek. If you're just joining us for the first time, we're glad you're here. We have been going on a little mini-series on the five points of Calvinism. Today, we're launching into the second point, unconditional election. If you've not checked out our episodes on total depravity, the T in TULIP, um, highly encourage you to go back the last two weeks, check out what Michael and I have to say on that topic. Uh, but joining me today, as always, is Michael Novak. My name is Jacob. I impersonate a podcast host. Michael, some new frames on that face, man. What's going on? Yeah, I went for uh, an annual eye exam today, and I feel and look smarter. <laughs> that's right. I came home, and my kids said that I look old, though, oh, and I man. said, that's a good thing for me. You kind of went with the frameless ones, huh? No, no more yeah. of the, the Ray-Bans. That's right. Um, I'm going to set a new trend. <laughs> there we go. So um, we're going to launch into the second point in Tulip today, but before we do that, we got a really good question on total depravity that I think will be a good uh, a way for us to review that point just a little bit and then... Um, launch into this next point. So this question was about how, um, so when we talk about total depravity, we talked about how all of humanity is totally affected by the fall and is marred by sin. But then how does this, uh, how do we square this with the fact that we see um, non-believers, people who are not Christians, mm-hmm. doing good works all the time and otherwise behaving in a in a moral manner? Yeah, it's a great question and attention that many people have likely felt as we've discussed total depravity because we look around in our lives and see lots of folks that would not claim to follow Jesus, but they're doing moral um, things that we would admire as Christians. For instance, uh, acting with integrity in the workplace, Mm -hmm. loving their wife well, disciplining their kids in a a healthy way. Giving to charity. That's right. Uh, Donating money and time and energy. And so it's important to understand as we talk about uh, goodness uh, in terms of the five points, we're talking about goodness with a capital G, Uh, ultimate goodness. Do we have the ability to choose um, God as we are dead in our sins? We'd say no. But that doesn't mean that the image of God is not still inside each person. And that image of God does manifest itself in actions that we would consider to be moral. Um, Now, we would say that uh, somebody who's not regenerate, someone who hasn't received new life, is not able to choose ultimate good. They're not able to choose God in a way that leads to salvation. But they are able to love, to serve, to give in ways that are commendable because the Imago Dei or the image of God is manifesting itself through them. That's right. The only other point I'll I'll add on that, and this is sort of at a super tactical level, when we talk about good deeds, it's important to remember that good uh, is really a relative term. We can only describe something as good relative to something else. Hmm. Um, and so when we, when we recognize something as a good deed, it's important to remember that that's a relatively good deed by a human standard. And when we talk about good deeds in the eyes of God, well, that's a completely mm-hmm. different standard. It's a standard which requires perfection. And frankly, all of our good deeds probably have some amount of, um, I don't know, improper motive sure. or a lack of true faith or are not conforming to God's law in some way. So mm-hmm. um, it's important to distinguish between, it's important just to recognize that our good works or the good works of a, of a non-believer are, are good only in a relative sense. That's a great point. Yeah. So um, great question. And I think that's a good way to segue uh, into our conversation on unconditional election. Um, as I was 
kind of preparing for this for this episode, I think if you accept what we talked about for total depravity, unconditional election becomes um, almost a, a corollary. It, it has to be so if we accept what we what we talked about around total depravity. But this can make some people mm-hmm. a little uncomfortable. We're going to talk a little bit about the P word, aren't we, Michael? Yep, the P word. And what is the P word, Jacob? That would be uh, predestination. Predestination. That's right. uh, we will call it predestination. Unconditional election is the U in TULIP. Um, but you see the words election and predestination in the Bible. Mm-hmm. And so if you claim to be a Bible-believing Christian, which I would imagine that most of our listeners would, uh, then you have got to deal with this idea of election and predestination in some way. Uh, you can't just say, I don't believe in predestination and election uh, because it's in the Bible. Mm-hmm. And so the question for us is, how do we make sense of these terms and how do we define them? That's right. And that's what we're going to be talking about over the next three weeks as we look at unconditional election together. Yeah. So just a, a very high level summary, and then we're going to kind of zoom out a little bit. Unconditional election is this idea that um, before God laid the foundations of the earth, he chose the people to redeem to himself and elected them for salvation, not based of any merit that, that they had, not based out of any future choice that they would make. Um, God unconditionally elected a people to to himself. Um, and that summary might cause a little bit of pause for some folks. Um, so I think we're going to take the majority of this, this episode and kind of zoom out a little bit mm-hmm. and sort of talk about the nature of God uh, in a couple of ways so that we can really unpack this a little bit further. Yeah, I think the thing that we need to do um, this session is lay a strong foundation Uh, that looks at the sovereignty of God from the scriptures. Mm -hmm. And if we can lay a solid foundation and come to agreement that God is in control of all things, that he is indeed sovereign over all things and events uh, and circumstances in our life, that'll lead us even further to embracing unconditional election in the way that uh, Calvin would have us embrace Mm -hmm. it. Yeah, so let's do that. What are some of the attributes of God that we have to get a, a really good understanding about if we're going to understand uh, particularly what the New Testament's going to say about election? Sure. I think uh, it would be worth our while to spend some time looking at uh, Scripture tonight uh, that highlights God's sovereignty and control. And so if you are listening as you're driving, uh, we would recommend at Trinity Grace Church that you do not try to follow <laughs> along with us in your Bible. Uh, just listen. We'll uh, we'll take you on a little journey. But the first thing we've got to understand is that God um, God is in control. There's an efficacy to God's control, and to say that God's controlling power is efficacious is simply to say that it always accomplishes its purposes. God never fails to accomplish what He sets out to do. And there's a few places you can go in Scripture uh, where this just radiates from the page. Uh, the first scripture that comes to mind is Jeremiah thirty-two twenty-seven, where it says um, thirty-two twenty-seven. I'm going to be flipping uh, a little bit, so it might uh, take a little time here. But thirty-two twenty-seven says, "Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me?" And then in Matthew chapter nineteen, verse twenty-six. Uh, let me flip there really quickly. Matthew 19, 26, Jesus talking about uh, a rich young ruler that he sends away because he's not willing to give up his wealth. 
in Matthew 19, 26, this is what Jesus says. He says, Jesus looked at his disciples and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Um, on top of that, in the scriptures, you see that God's purposes always come to pass. Um, you see this uh, specifically in Isaiah uh, 14. I want to read that really quickly for us uh, tonight. Isaiah 14, verse uh, 24 through 27 says this as it talks about God's, um, God's will coming to pass. It says, The Lord of hosts has sworn, As I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand, that I will break the Assyrian in my land, and on my mountains trample him underfoot, and his yoke shall depart from them, and his burden from their shoulder. This is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth, and this is the hand that is stretched out over the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? So basically, there's many places we could go tonight. Um, but I'll end uh, with Psalm 33 here just to tie this, the efficacy of God's control up with Psalm 33. Um, it says this, Psalm 33, verse 11, says, The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Uh, and so God is in control. All that he purposes comes to pass. Nothing is too hard for him. And that's important for us to understand as we move into this conversation uh, about unconditional election. Yeah, it doesn't just tip the scales in one direction or another. It's not strongly influential. When God wills something, it comes to pass. That's right. It's powerful to do that. Yeah. Um, so as we talk about God's uh, sovereignty and kind of laying this foundation here, where do we see this in the natural world? Yeah, you see God exercising control over events in the natural world, and the biblical writers really don't hesitate to ascribe the events of the natural world directly to God. You see that? Let's go to Psalm 65. Um, Psalm 65 um, says this in verses 9 through 11. It says, You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers, and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. Um, and so you see the idea that, that God is in control of rain. He's in control of seasons. He's in control of plenty and want. Um, and there's many other passages that we could go to, but we only have limited time tonight. Sure. Um, and so I'll just leave it with that passage and that thought about God's control over the natural world. I don't think there's going to be much pushback on the idea that God controls natural events. No, no. I, I think when we start to think about this, though, you'll, we'll start to see some of the, um, the tensions that we're going to have to um, kind of get comfortable um, holding together in our minds. And it's really important to point out that when we see these tensions, these are not contradictory things. Um, they're paradoxical things. And there's a tremendous difference between a contradiction and a paradox. What I'm thinking about specifically is that we often talk about, well, so we just talked about how God is sovereign over the natural events in the world, but we'll often also talk about how um, the world is not as it should be. And mm -hmm. the reason we have famine and drought and hurricanes that kill people is because the world is affected by sin, not just humanity, but mm -hmm. all creation. 
is affected by sin. And so although God is sovereign, Mm -hmm. there is also this fallen nature of the world. And and these two things, we kind of have to hold in tension with one another. Yeah, that's right. And and we'll touch on this, I think, at the very end of this episode is uh, you're you're hitting on the idea of the tension between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility Mm -hmm. even. Uh, But you you put it in a beautiful way, talking about the fact that we live in a fallen world. Yeah, you can really Um, start to get your brain twisted in a lot of places when you start to think about God's providence, but also these other things that are held in tension with mm-hmm. that. So um, true. maybe another podcast for another time. Um, but we also see God's sovereignty uh, throughout human events, don't we? Yeah. In human history, you see uh, God in control as well. So scripture is pretty clear that God oversees the course of every human life. Classic verse that comes to mind is Acts seventeen twenty six. It says this, God made from one man, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So the fact that we are here in the United States of America, in San Antonio, in the 21st century, is not an accident. God Mm -hmm. has determined that Michael, Jacob, and Guillermo would be at this place at this time. Um, His hand has seen to it. Uh, You also see at the very beginning of the Bible, um, in the story of Joseph, I'm not going to turn there and read uh, every... um, reference that I make, uh, because I think it's familiar to a lot of folks, this story, but you see the betrayal of Joseph by his brothers is the Lord's work. In Genesis 50, uh, Joseph basically says, you meant this for evil, but God intended it for good. Mm-hmm. And it actually wound up saving the people of God because Joseph was in Egypt during the famine and was able to welcome them to that country. And so uh, what, what mankind meant for evil, God uh, used for good. Um, you see that um, Judas makes a personal decision to betray Jesus, yet it happened as it had been decreed. Uh, you see that in Luke twenty two twenty two um, that Judas falls and God controlled that fall, that historical event. Um, and then um, you see that God brings everything about. He rules the whole course of human history. Um, it says in the Old Testament that the heart of the king is in his hands. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, you see that, uh, as well. It's easy to start to, to feel like we're making a deterministic argument and, and I don't think we are. I think there's some nuances between what we're talking about as, as far as God foreordaining the events that come to pass and mm-hmm. determinism, because God exists outside of the time and space that, that we think of. And so, um, when we talk about foreordination of events, we often think about God, see, I'm going to get myself twisted up here, but God before time sort of determining the path of everything mm-hmm. going forward, but God exists outside the time and space that we exist in. And so when, when you think about that, it's not exactly a deterministic argument. I don't know if you'd articulate those nuances a little bit better. Yeah. Does your head hurt yet? Yeah, a little bit. Um, uh, <laughs> um, I think that you're making a great point. Um, and the way I'd articulate it, I think, and even uh, work it out of my own mind is uh, it had been decreed that Judas uh, would fall away from the Lord, um, but that does not relieve Judas of his actions. Um, It doesn't even mean that God was controlling um, him in that moment. God wasn't... um, He wasn't pulling any kind of strings. That's right. It was was completely Judas's uh, responsibility, his decisions that led him to the place. And God's sovereignty was the umbrella over it all that was working those decisions out for a purpose that God had foreordained. 
And so this is where we're bumping up against this paradox yeah. of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Um, you hold them in tension. I don't think we're ever going to put them together in such a way where we're able to satisfy our curiosity. It's one of those things where both and are true. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not either or. It's all. It's both and when we think about God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Are there any other good examples of human decisions that sort of illustrate this uh, paradox? Yeah, there's a few that come to mind. The first we've touched on already, it's back in Genesis where uh, God uh, uses Joseph in order to save his people. And in Genesis 45, you see that the free decision of Joseph's brothers, God actually uses for his purposes. In Genesis 45, verses 5 to 8, it says this, And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. This is Joseph speaking to his brothers. For God sent me before you to preserve life, for the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest, and God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. And so Joseph's brothers are making an independent decision to kill him, Mm -hmm. and send. but he winds up in Egypt because he's bought by... uh, Ishmaelite traders that purchase him and take him to Egypt. Now, Joseph's brothers have none of this, you know, amazing storyline in mind when they do it, but God does. Mm -hmm. And so he's using their decisions to bring about his purposes. Another interesting place where you see this happening is in Cyrus, the life of King Cyrus in the Old Testament. Cyrus is called by name centuries before he was born. And it's prophesied that he'll end the Israelite exile. Uh, you see this in Isaiah 44, 28. Let me go there really fast. Isaiah 44, 28. Um, you're going to get your money's worth tonight. Um, I am on my iPad Bible. Um, and it's, you know, it's not as fast as the real thing. <laughs> Isn't that funny? You'd um, think it'd be I'd faster. probably be able to flip yeah. faster if I had an actual physical Bible in my hand. But how often... You know, we're all iPad people nowadays. Um, so forty four twenty eight. it says, Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. And then in Ezra chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, um, let's go there where we see this actually come to fruition. Um, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Um, Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in in, in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He's the God who's in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that's in Jerusalem. So here you see Cyrus, a completely free agent, um, sitting on the throne, Uh, doubtless he makes up his own mind for his own reasons to let Jerusalem be rebuilt, but God is the one who's orchestrating it all. Um, And so you've got God's sovereignty on one hand, Cyrus's responsibility and decision-making powers on another. And then lastly, uh, an interesting one is John 19, 24, at the foot of the crucifixion. Um, You actually see the soldiers freely decide not to tear Christ's garment and to roll dice for it um, and cast lots. And God foreordained that decision. 
Um, let's see, uh, John 19, verse 24. Let me just read that for you so um, you're not taking my word for it. Um, although I hope you do take my word sometimes <laughs> on things. Um, but 1924, it says, So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Yeah. Um, soldiers had no clue what they were doing at that point, uh, but they were fulfilling prophecy. Um, and so you have uh, these examples of human decisions being guided by God's control. Mm-hmm. And used as part of this kind of greater plan to fulfill prophecy and um, in the case of Cyrus to rebuild the temple and all that. It's important to see how, um, I like what you said about Cyrus where he had his own motivations and reasons mm-hmm. for doing this. He was not, um, you know, he, d- he didn't understand kind of God's master plan behind uh, behind everything or the soldiers casting a lot for Jesus's garments. They didn't understand that that was prophesied or didn't understand the significance of what they were doing, but out of their own free will motivations, they decided to do this thing that God had ordained before the foundations of the earth mm-hmm. and through his, you know, omniscience across all time and space yep. caused to happen. So, um, yeah, it can be certainly a head scratcher at times. Yeah. And it, you almost get a sense and, and the image in my mind is God weaving together a beautiful tapestry with all of these different human decisions that are being made, his sovereignty covering it all. And at the end of the day, we look back and see, wow, that's an amazing quilt that he is crafting. Yeah. um, For lack of a better analogy, I guess. So here's a question for you. Does Does God always like actively will or cause everything to happen? So like, did did God will me to eat Whataburger for breakfast this morning? Or does are certain things just allowed to um allowed to take place because they're insignificant? That that is a really great question, Jacob. And um it's obvious that God willed you to eat at Whataburger this morning because you were at a Bible study. Oh, yeah, and that's so right, that's right. Um, that was probably planned way before the foundation of the world that you would be there today studying Galatians chapter two. Yep. But seriously, uh, I think that we've got to say that even the smallest things in our life are ordained and controlled by God, because if we don't, um, where does that line get drawn? Yeah. Um, now, not to say that he's not using your desires. You woke up and you wanted a honey butter chicken biscuit this morning. <laughs> and um, but we would say that God's in control. He's sovereign. He knows all things. He's over even that. So I'm, I'm with you on that. And I and I understand the uh, God is sovereign is in control of everything. There's a there's a difference, though, between being in control of all things and sovereign over all things and actively causing all things mm-hmm. like um I don't know. I don't know what I'm trying to say here, but is there, is there a difference between God causing certain things to happen and God simply being in control of things happening? Yeah. Nothing surprises God. Yeah. He's never taken off guard. Um, he allows you to make decisions um, out of your personality, out of different uh, scenarios that are happening in your life. And so I do think that it, it's a good distinction to be made. Does God cause everything to happen? Maybe not. Mm-hmm. Is he in control and is his sovereignty over everything that happens? Absolutely. Yeah. So the, the Westminster Confessions in chapter five, where it talks about providence says, God, the great creator of all things, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest 
even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence. Um, but then just a little bit there later, it makes this distinction that I think is helpful. Um, I'm trying to avoid just reading and boring people, trying to find a good place to jump in. It says, although in relation to the foreknowledge and decree of God, the first cause, all things come to pass immutably and infallibly, yet by the same providence, he orders them to fall out according to the nature of second causes, hmm. either necessarily, freely, or contingently. Sure. So... I'm I'm thinking secondary here, causes. But there's, is you woke up and you were hungry for a <laughs> honey butter chicken biscuit. Yeah, God being the first cause to create me with a voracious appetite for sustenance in the morning hours um, is the first cause, and the second cause is uh, seeing that beautiful orange and white. I don't That's know. right. And I'll let people in on a dirty little secret here tonight. Jacob actually didn't order the honey butter chicken biscuit. I didn't. No. No. What I'm did a, you order? I'm a, I'm a Bob man. Okay. Breakfast on a bun. Man. Yeah. That was disappointing to see. <laughs> Yeah. So, yeah, that's that's sort of just an interesting in question to think about because I, there's so many people that will spend their life looking for the thing that God has chosen for them. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if we do a, a disservice by not by not telling people that. Um, I don't know. I, I wonder if we do a disservice by insisting that people look out for um, like the one when people talk about marriage yep. or like this is the job that God has decreed before the yep. foundations of the earth. Uh, for me to for yeah. me to do. I mean, secondary causes, I think, I, I love that you read the Westminster Confession and it kind of clears it up a lot yeah. for us. The idea of secondary causes, I wanted to go to the University of Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Um, I went there and, you know, that was my choice mm-hmm. and God was ordaining and in control uh, of, of those choices that I was making, but it doesn't forfeit the idea of those secondary causes, my yeah. personality, the circumstances in my family, the budget for college mm-hmm. that we had. Mm-hmm. All of these were secondary causes that came into play uh, that were under the umbrella of uh, of God's sovereignty. Sure. Yeah. Th- this whole providence question is one that uh, we could probably spend a, a long time on and probably never really come to a a really great answer. Yeah. Um, so with that in mind, let's go to an even tougher question and talk about <laughs> how God is sovereign even over our sin. Yeah. And this raises a lot of difficult questions for folks as we start diving deeper into God's control, um, especially when we talk about God's control over sin. But you've really got to wrestle with what the Bible says on this one, allow it to speak um, and, and wrestle with it because the Bible's clear that God brings about even sinful behavior in human beings, whatever problems that may create in our understanding. Yeah. And so the place that comes to mind is Exodus chapter 4, verse 21. You've got this showdown at the beginning of Exodus between uh, Pharaoh, uh, who is basically um, in charge of Egypt, and God. Uh, you might know this story. God wants his people to be able to be free from uh, Egypt. And uh, 4 verse 21 says this, um, kind of at the very beginning of that showdown. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Mm. And so there, very clearly, you see that uh, God hardens the heart of Pharaoh, but then later you see that Pharaoh hardens his own heart in the story. And so God hardens his heart, Pharaoh hardens his heart. Which is it? It's both and. So when we talk about Pharaoh's heart being hardened, um, 
how exactly does that happen and what does this look like? Because I don't think either one of us would say that God explicitly caused Pharaoh to sin or, or put sin into his heart in so many words. Yeah. And when, when Pharaoh's heart was hardened, he was basically refusing to obey God's commands. And it's important to make a, a distinction here. God was not forcing Pharaoh to do anything that he would not naturally do on his own accord. Uh, and so in a sense, in hardening Pharaoh's heart, God was taking away uh, the hand of restraining grace mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and allowing Pharaoh to do what he naturally wanted to do, which is disobey God in the That's first right. place. Yeah, God didn't cause him to do uh, certain sinful things, and God doesn't cause any of us or or unbelievers to yep. commit certain sins, but rather allows them to act according to their own free sure. will. He basically and, took the governor off. Yeah. Yep. And he allows people to do uh, exactly what they want. I, I think, again... Uh, the confession is is helpful here. I'm going to read from the same general section, but one of the other paragraphs, and it's a little bit a, a sizable chunk, so bear with me. But it says, um, as for those wicked and ungodly men whom God, as a righteous judge for former sins, does blind and harden, so Pharaoh is a good case study here, um, from them he not only withholds his grace, whereby they might have been enlightened in their understanding and wrought upon in their hearts, but sometimes also withdraws the gifts which he had and exposes them to such to such objects as their corruption makes occasion of sin, and withal gives them over to their own lusts, the temptations of the world, and the power of Satan, whereby it comes to pass that they harden themselves, mm-hmm. even under those means which God uses for the softening of others. Mm-hmm. So I think this is just an important distinction that... Um, God does not create sin in anyone, but rather uh, withholds some of those common graces and um, allows a person's natural inclinations mm-hmm. to take over. Yeah. And you see this as you fast forward to the New Testament as well, uh, the sinful inclinations of man taking over uh, with the ultimate crime of human history, we would say as Christians, the cross itself. Yeah. And in Acts 2.23, a passage we looked at this past Sunday at Trinity Grace, uh, it says this, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So the crucifixion could not have happened without sin. Um, and lawless, sinful men put Jesus to death, but it was according uh, to God's definite plan and foreknowledge. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so here God um, using what was evil for ultimate good, yeah. um, using sin in order to bless uh, uh, the world uh, through the death of his son. For sure. So we've seen how um, God God's will is efficacious. It accomplishes what he intends for it to. We've seen how... God is sovereign in the natural world throughout human history. We've seen even how God is sovereign um, over the sin that that infects the world. Mm. Um, but now we get into this question of faith and salvation, and there seems to be this huge controversy over this question of why do some people come to faith and not others? Mm-hmm. And I think this is really what we're going to start launching into the unconditional election discussion next week. Yeah, and I think you've got to ask the question, If it's true that God ordains all things to come to pass, why would he leave out what's arguably the most important piece of them all, the salvation of people? 
Uh, why would he ordain everything else but say that one little piece is going to be out of my control? Mm-hmm. And that's what we're going to be talking about for the next few weeks. And before we close, I, I do want to just highlight this because we've talked a lot about the idea of man's responsibility and God's sovereignty tonight. And what do we do with that tension? Mm-hmm. And I think this could help crystallize the Calvinist, Arminian kind of camps um, because uh, you see that the Arminians, they see this tension and they conclude, well, we've got to pick one or the other, God's sovereignty or man responsibility. We can't have both. So God in the end isn't really absolutely sovereign or in control. Man's absolutely free and God doesn't directly intervene in the process. Um, and if that's where you land, you have all of those Bible passages that we talked about to deal with and more. Uh, the weight of the Bible is really against you at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, you've got what are called hyper-Calvinists who view this tension between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. They've got to pick one. They can't have both. And so man isn't actually free or responsible, they say. God's a puppet master. And our decisions are illusions, mm. which is kind of what we were bumping up against a little earlier. Yeah, our this decisions is, illusions. This is the fatalism and determinism That's right. side of things. Well, you have all those places in the Bible that clearly state that the decisions of people are their decisions and they're held responsible yeah. for them. So it's not biblical either to take this view. Um, and so we would make the argument um, that Calvinism, as we're going to talk about it in the coming weeks, holds this idea of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility and tension in a way we are trying to get at tonight. Sure. Well, I think that's probably a good place to leave it for this week. Mm -hmm. Next week, we're going to be diving more into the meat of unconditional election, what it is, what it isn't, some of the tough conversations that that happen around that topic. Uh, We hope you tune in for that. As always, we want to adjust, uh, address your questions. If you have questions on the five points of Calvinism, particularly unconditional election, send those in, and uh, we want to uh, give it our best shot and take a stab at those. You can email those to michael at trinitygracesa.org, or you can text those questions to 210-920-0783. Until next week, we'll see you later.